0: Well, July 27th, 1996, the Olympics are going on in Atlanta, Georgia. There's a security guard who's at Olympic Park making sure people were safe and secure, and he comes along a pipe bomb that's there in Centennial Park in Atlanta, Georgia, and he begins yelling and screaming and telling everyone who's there to run because there's a bomb that hasn't detonated yet. And shortly after that, he'd gotten hundreds of people out of the park. And shortly after that, the bomb detonates and it kills a couple of people. And we hear about it on the news. If you were alive in 1996 and you were old enough to turn on the news, Worldwide News, it was on. And the FBI began to investigate and were wondering who did this. And the name Richard Jewell comes up. And all the news stations, all the newspapers of the day have his picture plastered all over the front page of the news. And he's the primary suspect. And yet they don't have enough on Richard Jewell for really seven years to, to lock him up. And so this is the bombing in 1996 Olympics goes unsolved, and yet perception is reality, right? And seven years later, a guy named Eric. Rudolph is arrested seven years later for the Olympic bombing. Imagine being Richard Jewell for seven years. Imagine what it was like with his neighbors or even his family. Trying to get a job, trying to live. See, Richard Jewell was a security guard who warned all these people to get out of the park and yet he was falsely accused And for seven years, people looked at him, even though he wasn't in jail, like he did it when he didn't. He was mistreated. He was treated unfairly. People opposed him, and he probably didn't know what life would bring for the rest of his life. See, mistreatment, and this is kind of a sensational, maybe extreme example, but mistreatment is part of life. Jesus says, if you live in this world, you will experience what? trouble. What do you do when life isn't fair? Kids, what do you do when your sibling accuses you of something and it's not you or your mom and dad do and it's not you? Mom and dad at work when something goes wrong at work and the guy above you or the girl above you blame it on you and it looks like it's your fault when it isn't. When you're mistreated, how do you respond you respond with a victim mentality. How do you get over it? How do you get through it? The Apostle Paul knew a few things about mistreatment, didn't he? He knew a few things about people um, oppressing him. He knew a few things about uncertainty in life. But there was something in the way that he responded that we can learn from this morning. See, when Christ is your aim, it changes the response of mistreatment. It changes the response of somebody, even in your own church or in the church, a, a believer in Christ, offending you. It changes, or it ought to change when Christ is your aim, the way you respond to uncertainty that surely is a part of all of our lives. So he's already introed the letter of Philippians. This is the book that we've been in, and we're going to continue in this morning. He's introed this letter. He's said hi. He's remembered how this Philippian church has started and the gospel has advanced and the gospel has done its work. And then he prays for them in a hard situation. He's praying for them. He's praying for their growth. What an encouragement that must have been to the Philippians. And now he comes to a, the next section of Philippians where he tells them more about what's going on with him. You see, in that day, everybody who was a believer knew about Paul. Paul. They knew he was the Apostle Paul who had once oppressed Christians and then Jesus brought him to faith and then he was going to all around the area to share the gospel and plant churches and yet he's in prison and so people want to know how he's doing and so Paul now is going to tell them how he's doing and give them some incredible encouragement about mistreatment. So turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, and we'll be in verses 12 through 20. It's page 980 on the Bible next to you. If you've got a Bible, grab it. But he really is encouragement to us in how we handle mistreatment. What do we do when that mistreatment is from the world? What do we do when that mistreatment is inside the church? And what do we do when we don't know what's coming next? Paul's going to give a great encouragement to these Philippians in that, and it's a great encouragement to us as well Philippians 1 pick it up with me verse 12 and I'll just read to verse 20 and then we'll unpack three things I want to show you this morning about this text verse 12 I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ think about that perspective Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now and always, Christ will be honored or magnified in my body, whether by life or by Death. Look at verse 12. I want to show you something interesting. The words, what has happened to me. To know what has happened to him. If you look back just a few verses, he talks about how he remembered what had happened to them. that The gospel had come to them and God had moved and they had come to faith. And now he's going to say to them, I want you to know there's some misinformation out there, brothers. Here's what's happened to me. So he's going to give them the background story of what has happened to him. If you want that background story, go to Acts chapter 21, all the way through Acts 28. And you see what happens to Paul. And I'm just going to give you a summary of what happened to Paul. So you remember he was going around and Jews were persecuting him as he was planting churches. The book of Acts chronicles all these churches that were planted and the gospel is advancing in all these different missionary journeys and people warned him don't go back to jerusalem but he got in a boat from ephesus and he sailed back to jerusalem and he comes to jerusalem and he's in the marketplace in the marketplace with some greek brothers who've come to know jesus from ephesus and then he goes to the temple bad move everybody knows paul everybody knows his history everybody's watching for him Men are keen in on him, and they see him in the temple in Jerusalem. And they say, him. He's stirring up dissension. He's not following the law. And oh, by the way, we've seen him with a Greek in the temple. That was a no-no. You don't bring non-Jews into the temple. The problem with that is Luke tells us that they supposed that he brought him to the temple. He didn't bring him to the temple, and so these are trumped-up charges against Paul they were in the marketplace with these guys and say, "Oh yeah, but he was in the temple as well." False accusation. And so what do they do in the temple? They drag him out of the temple and they begin to beat him. And who's running Jerusalem at that time? The Romans, right? So the Romans come, the centurions come, and they stop the commotion, but they put Paul in chains and two chains. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. The Jews are saying he needs to die but they bring him in and then something happens. You read in the book of Acts that forty dudes that are Jewish that wanted Paul dead, they took a vow and they said until he's dead, we're not going to eat. And so he goes to, they, they send him to different prefects in the area. They send him to Caesarea outside of Jerusalem and they send him to Felix. Felix is like the governor of the area, and he keeps him in prison for two years. So I don't know what happened with that vow, but I'm pretty sure they ate after 40 days. But two years he stays there, and we read that Felix doesn't really find that much fault in him, but he's into politics and he wants stability. Think Jesus and Pontius Pilate. He wants stability in the area from all these Jews, and he also wants a bribe from Paul, and Paul doesn't give him a bribe. And so he stays in a prison cell for two years. And then the guy that comes after him that takes him play, his place, Festus, doesn't know what to do with him. And then Herod Agrippa shows up after a short time, when Festus doesn't know what to do with him. He doesn't find fault in him, and he and Agrippa are having a chat. And Agrippa says, man, if, if this guy wouldn't appeal because Paul uses his citizenship, and he appeals to Caesar because he knew if he was going to go back to Jerusalem that they were going to kill him, See, see, Paul's not this martyr who wants to die. He wants to advance the gospel. This martyr syndrome, he, he wasn't looking to die. He wanted to advance the gospel. He wanted to live. And so he appealed to, C- to Caesar. And so this guy Agrippa, who's Herod Agrippa, says, man, I would have let him go. <laughs> I he, he doesn't deserve death. And he doesn't even deserve imprisonment. I would have let him go. But he's appealed to Caesar, so we've got to send him to Rome. So you're in Israel, you're in Caesarea, and how does he get to Rome? He gets to Rome through the Mediterranean Sea, so he gets on a ship. What happens on the ship? You may know the story. They get shipwrecked in Malta. And they've got a fire, and this viper comes and bites him on the arm. How bad can it get for the guy? It bites him on the arm, God heals him, he goes on to Rome. The best, the best scenario for about two and a half years was he gets to Rome, because now he's in house arrest, he's got his own house, and he's hanging out and he can have guests in that house. This is the best it's gotten for him in over two years. To where Luke and Timothy and Onesimus can come. And different people can come. But he's chained up during the day at least. He's chained up to an imperial guard. You know what the imperial guard is? Think about gladiator for a minute. Think about the praetorium. This is the praetorium guard. This is the most elite fighting force in Rome. But they also have power. These are the kingmakers. In the day for the next Caesar. I want you to think about that for a minute. Where does God take him? He takes him from the prison cell. To a place where he's with all these people who are in power. See also Acts 9. When Jesus says to him. You're going to go before kings and authorities. And preach the gospel. So listen. All that said. He's been through hardship. He's been mistreated. If there's ever a guy that could... Shake his fist at God. Not that we any of us should. If there's any ever a guy that ought to be bitter, and frustrated, and angry at God, he might be the guy. He's gone through all of that, being faithful to Jesus. But look at the way he responds. That's what's happened to him. That's the longer account of what's happened to him. But look at his perspective in verse 12. It's really served to do what? Advance the gospel. His perspective is not victimhood. His perspective is not woe is me. His perspective is, look, the gospel is advancing. I get to hang out with the praetorium guard. Next to Caesar, they're right under that, and they have to listen to me. (laughs) They have to listen to me talk to Timothy and Luke. And you know what? They're coming to know Jesus. See, that's the beauty of the situation. Here's the principle. Nothing can happen to you that doesn't go through God first. Nothing can happen to you that doesn't go through God first. You can trust in that. And hard is hard. Right? Paul's chains hurt. He doesn't want to be there. He would prefer to come to to Rome and prefer to be before kings, I'm sure, and authorities, I'm sure, with royal garb on, having a cup of tea. But he didn't come to Rome As a preacher, he actually came as a prisoner, didn't he? And yet, he's saying that the gospel can still advance. So nothing can happen to you that doesn't go through God first. And the other thing is this. In that day, he was chained to the praetorium guard. You know what that means? The praetorium was chained to him too. There's a two-way street here. There's two sides to every chain. And that's how Paul saw it. You know what? I'm chained to him, but he's chained to me too. So he's going to hear it. He's going to hear the gospel. He's going to hear me talking to Luke. He's going to hear me talking to Timothy and Onesimus and the people that can come visit me. He's going to hear the gospel. It's a two-way street. You think about this idea. Remember we're in Genesis with Joseph, Joseph's life. His brother put him in a, brothers put him in a pit, and that was hard, and hard was hard. Good was good too. God can use hard for good. And his purposes is exactly what happens with Joseph. So at the end, years and years later, Joseph can say, I don't know if he was saying it when he's in the prison, but later he could say, What these men meant for evil, God meant for good. And don't forget your Savior. Don't forget Jesus. God was sovereign. The Father was sovereign over his hardship. He ordained the suffering of His own Son, that you might have life. If you just flip to the next page, you would read this in chapter 2, which we'll get to. But Christ emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His hardship means your freedom from sin. See, God is, has His sovereign hand even in your hardship. Paul has a lot of reasons to mail it in. He has a lot of reasons. He could be, consider himself a victim, bitter, walk away. Let me ask you this morning, C3. Figuratively, figuratively speaking, what are the things that you're chained to? What are the things that you can't get out of that God has you in? And don't think abuse and sinful things and wrong things, but hear me out. What are the things that you can't get out of, that God has you in? How do you respond to those things? Maybe it's a hard marriage or a job situation. Maybe it's for you right now with motherhood. You're at home and you're the stay-at-home mom. It's like, man, I just want to break... What are the challenges that you face that God has put you in? And then maybe better yet, what gospel opportunities await you on the other side of that chain? What gospel opportunities await for you on the other side of that chain, the two-way chain? This is Paul's perspective. While he's in chains, and he's gone through all of this, his perspective is, how can the gospel be advanced? How can Christ be magnified even here? And you know what I'm afraid of in my own life is that um, I avoid hardship like the plague because we, I live in so much comfort. Like you, I live in so much comfort and I live in so much ease that those become idols in my life. And it keeps me oftentimes from trusting in God or the hard of pursuing the path that I know is going to be hard when I don't have to. I don't know if you know this, I want to talk about persecution, because effectively that's what we're talking about with Paul, and we're so far insulated and removed from that here, right? But I want you to, just some stats, today, in our world, half the world wakes up in the morning, and half the country, let me say this, in half the countries of the world, Christians wake up in those countries, not knowing if they're going to live or not. And you may think, how can that be? We're insulated. There is the threat of death in half the countries of the world toward Christians. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I looked it up and made sure it was right (laughs) when I read that. And most countries in the world, and most people in the world, if they believe threat of loss of job, well-being, ability to make a living, it's very difficult for them in the world. And we're so insulated. And that's a blessing. I receive that as a blessing. That we're, we live in a place where we're so far from that. And yet. I think there is a growing. Sense in our culture. That we're a post Christian culture. And the world of cancel culture is real. And I, that's not a political statement by the way cancel culture is real, go ask a public school teacher or or a private school teacher for that matter, go ask a professor, a Christian professor in a university, state-run or private-run or, I hate to say it, liberal Christian universities, cancel culture is real. If you want to go learn about that, I would highly recommend, I posted it on my Facebook post, David French. I don't agree with everything that David French comes up with, but he's done a lecture series. If you're going, why in the world is the world the way it is? Why is there all this screaming and canceling? Helps you understand the ideology behind it. encourage you to check that out. It's real. So that's why we need more professors and teachers. That's why we need Hannah Dietrichs, if you're watching, I think you are this morning. She's getting her Ph.D. We need people in the classroom. We need people informing young minds of truth. We need people in all areas. There is a growing sense of cancel culture on any side you look toward your faith. But listen, God is sovereign even in our hardship or whatever may come. So my question for you is, do you choose to see God's sovereign hand in your hardship, whatever that looks like, from the outside? But what about the inside? Paul dealt with it here from the outside world, but now he's going to deal with it from the inside, inside the church world. Look at it, verse 15 through 18. Some preach Christ from envy, rivalry, not good motives, but they're preaching Christ. Notice that. They're not false teachers. He's not talking about false teachers here. If you go to places in the New Testament, like most of the New Testament epistles, he's really strong against false teaching. So these who preach Christ, in this case, aren't Judaizers. There aren't people outside of the gospel. There are people inside the church who preach Christ, but they're doing it with bad motives. Others from goodwill, so there's two camps, right? The later do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. That's his calling. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish. Ambition. Not sincerely. Remember last week we saw the word pure or sincerity without wax. These guys have wax. But thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So we're not told all the details here of what that looked like. But there were grievances against Paul. Here's the situation. In the church, when leadership, um, in this case, when Paul is put in prison, it creates a vacuum. Creates a vacuum. And so People with selfish ambition have come in in Rome and said, all right, I want to be in the spotlight now. Paul was in the spotlight before, but I want to be in the spotlight. Here's the situation in Philippi. Paul had planted the church in Philippi. He's the first guy to take the gospel to Europe. But in Rome, he didn't plant that church. There were already believers there, which is great. People who had come to faith, planted churches, and there were existing churches in Rome, it looks like. That's why in the book of Romans, he says, I'm not coming to build on your foundation, I'm coming to support you. I'm coming to advance the gospel. But these people, like any of us could fall into this trap, they're going, man, Paul's out of the way. I want the book deal. I want to be the guy. I want to be the one. So they're preaching Christ, but they're doing it for their own ambition. Listen, ambition can be good. Gospel kingdom ambition can be good. Paul David Tripp says it this way, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. A good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. It got really quiet in here. I was getting used to the background noise. So they have a beef with Paul, but look at his response. Look at his response. It's, it, he's offended. They're probably talking about him, but they're preaching the gospel. What then? Verse 18. He's telling the Philippians, what then? What do I do? They're probably wanting him to take care of the situation because he's Paul. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. What he's saying is, I'm trying to find something good about what they're doing, and they're still proclaiming Christ. Even though they want the spotlight, they want the book deal, they're proclaiming Christ, and people are coming to know Jesus, it's okay. He didn't grind down into the minutia of an offense. Because the gospel was still being advanced. Unfortunately, we live in a world... Even today, and this is a temptation, there's a lot of ministries out there that literally spend most of their time tongue-clucking, that's what I call it, about other ministries that are orthodox, but they don't like this thing or that thing about what they do. Spend your time advancing the gospel as opposed to tongue-clucking about how you don't like something of someone else because it's bringing attention to you. Here's the point. See, when Christ is our aim, we pursue His glory over our own. When Christ is our aim, we see God's sovereign hand in our hardships, but we also pursue His glory over His own. You see that? He's not aiming over here. He's not going to get sidetracked over here. He's going to pursue the gospel and the advance of the gospel. where He's at. That takes a lot of maturity to go, I really want to do that. I have the power to do that. I'm not going to do it. It takes a lot of maturity not to go there. We pursue his glory over our own. It makes me think of John the Baptist. Remember the situation with John the Baptist in John chapter 3? See, John came before Jesus to tell people that Jesus was coming. He was to bear witness about the light. And Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and then John's disciples come to John and they say, Hey, people that were following you, John, are now following Jesus. What are you going to do about that? In other words, He's, he now has a big name. What about your name? It's a great moment for John the Baptist. Could have been a really bad moment. It's a great moment for John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist do? He does what he's been doing. He says, listen, disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. And you know what the great thing is? The great thing is, is, is and, he, and he describes it this way, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And guess what? that he's the one, he's the groom, and the church is the bride. And you know what our role is? We get to be on the front row. We get to be in the wedding party to see Jesus and the church come together and Jesus lay his life down for the church. And so when you go to a wedding, you're celebrating with the bride and the groom. And so that's what he's saying to his own disciples who want him to have a name, He says, no, 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 it's not our role. You want to experience joy and rejoicing and life? Celebrate what Christ is doing. He's eclipsed me, rightfully so. Great perspective. John the Baptist pursued Christ's glory over his own. Let me ask you, whose name needs to be in the lights of your Bible study, of your discipleship group? of your community group, of the ministry that you run or are a part of, of your church, leaders, elders, me, who needs to be in the lights. The beautiful thing is that when Jesus is in the lights, disciples are made. So any good things, maybe inventory, any good things in life become ruling things like ambition. Ambition is good or name. And how easily are you offended? When people encroach upon your territory, these are hard questions. Can you see the bigger kingdom picture as Paul did here? Previous church I was at started, it was a church plant, and uh, we had a group of people. There was another group of people um, from Houston's First Baptist Church, and it was our take that before they left Houston's First Baptist Church to come and join us, they were a large Sunday school class that they needed to go to Greg Mott. I don't know if you know Greg Mott, pastor of Houston's First. Um, And they needed to go to Greg Mott and talk to him about it. And Greg's response was great. I remember sitting there, and Greg said, look, we want to bless you. We want to see the gospel advance. There's so many areas in this community that need the gospel. You go with our blessing. So There's not territory here. And they came with us. It's a beauty of church planting. It's a beauty of blessing others who go out and say, I, I wish you were here, but you're going to advance the gospel. This church has planted two churches. I want to see that continue in the life of our church. To be kingdom people, big kingdom people, not little kingdom people. So as Christ's our aim, we pursue his glory. And when Christ's name is our aim, I didn't mean that to be rhyming, but it does. When Christ's name is your aim, there's less drive. To pursue our own glory. And then last, look at verse 19 and 20. And here's your last point. When Christ is your aim, we can remain hopeful amidst uncertainty. Amidst uncertainty. Look at the uncertainty that's in, in Paul's life here in verse 19 and 20. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit... By the way, think about that. The vehicle in which Paul can have this perspective about his life, and about the joy that comes from Christ, is through the Philippians' prayers, we need one another. He's not done with us, but we're not alone. We need one another. This will turn out for my deliverance. And you're going, what do you mean your deliverance? It is my eager expectation, hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life or death. So this idea of deliverance, I think he has two things in mind. Some people go, well, I think he really expected physical deliverance, that he would go on living. But I think what's also in view from his own words, whether by life or death, is whether I'm released from prison, take another breath, or Caesar kills me, right? That Christ is exalted, that Christ is honored. Either way, I want you to think about that level of uncertainty Anything about all the uncertain little things in your life, whether it's from a pandemic, whether it's from what you think about what's going on in our world, in our nation, that's about as far over as you can get, serious uncertainty, if I'm going to take another breath or not. And even in that scenario, he's praying, he's asking for prayers that the Philippians and the Holy Spirit would help him have the perspective that whether life or death, either way it's deliverance. Either way, Christ is honored. Christ is magnified. you see these three responses? You see the response to hardship? The gospel's advancing. you see the response to people saying stuff about him? Gospel is advancing. He can't be offended because <laughs> the gospel is advancing. And here, even in a scenario that he's in, which is life or death, Christ's going to be exalted. I don't think this is this kumbaya thing where we look at Paul and go, wow, he's really amazing. you got to know, in between the narrative that we see, that there's a lot of crying, a lot of pain, a lot of hardship that he's going through, but he's aiming. He's aiming at Christ. Uncertainty. He still plans. Look at it. The eager expectations. It's not stopped him from living. It didn't... He didn't cower in fear. He didn't go into lockdown. You Think about certainty in your own life, right? Think about all the ways that we try in our schedule, in our life, to create certainty. This past week uh, was my 29th birthday. And um, what's, what's, what's so funny? I don't even have my beard. You can't even see my grace. 29th birthday, Friday, right? Fr- birthdays are like that, right? It's my day, my way or Mother's Day, rightfully so, Father's Day, birthday, I've got the schedule on this day, it's my day, y'all cater to me, that's okay. So Friday was my birthday, and so I had that thing, uh, okay, I'm going to get the kids to school, breakfast with my wife, i going go play golf with a friend, I'm going to have a date night with my wife tonight, it's going to be a great day. Get up about 5.45, kids are getting up, let the dog out, out to the backyard, and I hear a whelp and it's, it's not the normal whelp. It's like something just happened. I live in Westwood. There's deer who bed down in the backyard. So I knew before I saw it that Lady, our little 10-year-old dachshund, the deer got her. And I was just praying that she was okay. She comes wallowing back, laceration down her leg. I saw more than I needed to see. So my day changed <laughs> a bit. Took her in to the incredibly, ridiculously expensive emergency ER for pets over here. Said, put some drugs in her. But before you do anything, I want to know the bill. Then took her to the vet. We hadn't gotten a vet. We'd been here a year. I hadn't gotten a vet. Maybe we're bad pet people. I shouldn't be saying that. My wife's going to be mad. I told you that. But we got a vet, and we got her in. Got her stitched up. My day went very different. My day, my way, not so much. Still got to do some fun things. Uncertainty. There's uncertainty all in life. There's a lot of uncertainty in the year that we've had. <laughs> What's next? Pandemic, election. But really, is anything really that certain? I think we've learned that. No. Now, what, do you, what are the things that, you, that give you a false sense of control in your life? Things that you fear, anxieties you have. See, when your aim is fixed on Christ or pointing toward Christ, in the thick of it, you can be hopeful, even though your breath may be uncertain. The other night, we were at dinner with some friends, um, and the guy's an expert in skydiving. Been there, done that, seen it all, worked at the place. I've always had this thing, I want to do that, bucket list, I want to go skydiving, but I want to know some facts before I do it. So here's a guy who's been on the ground of the skydiving place, right? He's been on the ground, and and he's seen it all. I'm like, okay, how many go splat? That's what I want to know. I want the data before I go because I know when I get there, there's going to be a pit in my stomach. I know when I get up in that plane, I'm not going to want to do it. I'm not going to feel like doing it. And listen, listen. You can trust Christ who ordains all things, who holds the world together by the word of his power, the Bible says, that nothing's going to happen apart from what he ordains and lets you go through. And if that's true, if that's true, and it is, man, my feelings can't run my life. And that's a daily grind, right? That's not, oh, I know that and everything's going to be okay because I know the truth. But we have to continue to continue to remind ourselves that we can remain certain amidst uncertainty, because God's got us. Paul's mistreated from the world and the church. You see God's hand, and he sees God's hand in his own imprisonment. He's overlooking a personal grievance from people even in the church been there, and then in the face of uncertainty about getting even to take another breath. That's not because the power of positive thinking. That's because God's at work through the Spirit. God is gracious to him that he's aiming toward Christ in that struggle. And that is there for you and me. God supplies what we need to aim in his direction. See, when Christ is our aim, our comfort, our glory, our control takes a back seat. And I hear my dad in the back of my head saying, Son, the world doesn't revolve around you. You ever use that with your own kids? And what Paul is saying here is, no, you're right, the world doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around the sun. It revolves around the son of God who gave himself for us. But speaking, revolving around something, if you think about it, the moon models our role pretty well. The moon, think science, the moon. What does the moon do? It generates no light in and of itself. And apart from the sun, the moon is nothing more than a pitch black rock. But when you position, when the moon is properly positioned, the moon beams. The moon reflects or magnifies the greater light of the sun. The moon is also at peace with her place as her role is a soft light that touches a dark earth. C3, your takeaway is this let Christ be magnified. Let Christ be magnified in your life. Let Him increase and you decrease by the power of the Spirit that works in you. And when that happens, other things fade. When you're mistreated, it's not that big of a deal. When you're shackled, when you're offended, when you're uncertain about the future, the light of the gospel can shine through to a dark world. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for these truths thank you for the example of Paul who is leaning in in hard times who's leaning in to Christ and who he is and what he's done and he's asking the Spirit of God to continue to do a work that he might not be ashamed that Christ might be magnified in his body and Lord we we stand in that same place maybe the circumstances are different but Our hardships are there. Our offenses toward us are there. Uncertainties of life are there. And help us aim somewhere. Help us aim at the person and work of Christ. And by your grace, let us be found faithful. We love you. Thank you for these truths. I pray that they would impact the way that we live today and tomorrow and the next. That Christ would be magnified. In our life, in Jesus' name, amen.